So the world is often uh, a bad and discouraging place, and particularly in terms of state actors. Um, North Korea kills people on foreign soil. Uh, so does Russia. Russia is also very good at locking up journalists and sometimes worse than locking up journalists, uh, sometimes killing journalists on foreign soil. Um, in Saudi Arabia, actually well before the Jamal Khashoggi story, was really good at locking up journalists. Uh, I think in the last two years or so, about 10, well, locking up might even be a euphemism, uh, in, in Saudi Arabia itself, I think, I think about 10 journalists have disappeared. Whereabouts unknown, could be in a cell, could not be alive anymore. Uh, we don't know anything about any of that for the most part, or if we do know about it, it doesn't keep us awake at night. It doesn't dominate the news cycle. But the Khashoggi story has, and has, it's excited our moral sensibilities in a way that some of these other stories don't, and in a way that some of the other stories about our involvement with the Saudi regime don't. Um, and so I want to talk about that today. Uh, at some point, we can maybe take some calls from you, but I, I got in touch with a few people that I know who think seriously well, I didn't do it. Betsy Kaplan did it. But uh, who thinks seriously about moral questions? And so joining me in studio, well, I should say later in the show, uh, Adam Davidson from The New Yorker will be joining us. Uh, I've just been following him on Twitter where he's doing the closest thing that anybody can do to nuanced moral reflection on Twitter. It's not really a place that was built for that, but uh, he's trying. Uh, joining us in the studio right now is an old friend of the show, Mark Silk, professor and director of the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Trinity College, staff blogger uh, at Religion News Service. So, Mark, I mean, it's no, it's not breaking news that we pick and choose our moral issues. Um, you know, evangelical Christians have to figure out, as you and I have talked about mm -hmm. in the past, how to countenance some of the behavior of Donald Trump that they know about. I mean, there's, there's sliding scales all the time. And, and I guess the Khashoggi story is just another example of that. But, but if that's the case, we should look at the tripwires that it kicks in a way that other stories don't kick the same tripwires. So what do you see there? Well... First of all, it's somebody who was close to home. So, mm -hmm. so you know, this was a, a man who the people in Washington knew, the journalist. He wrote columns for the Washington Post. And um, so he was one of us. And I think that, that kind of rocketed it forward. I, I, I guess I, what I'd say is that when, when we have one of these moral, very clear moral issues, journalist, you know, about to get married, walks into his home embassy and doesn't reappear, um, you know, it's there's a clarity there that, that can often be fuzzed up with a story like Yemen, you know, who's on which side, where are the Iranians, all of this kind of stuff. And then it becomes this opportunity to see whether in this next moral test, the president of the United States um, will actually say the right thing. Whatever one knows about American moral behavior in the world, um, the idea is, you know, is he going to actually stand up and protest when one of ours gets hurt? This guy who said, you know, journalists are the enemy of the people. And and so I think that that becomes a kind of moral test that then we, we examine. Yeah. So um, 
Right. So in the case of Donald Trump, you know, there's the old thing about uh, a stopped clock is right twice a day. He's like the opposite of that. He's a clock that tells all the times at once. And so one of those times is going to be correct. So he's taken every possible position uh, on this siding with the Saudis, siding against the Saudis, believing their account, disbelieving their account. It's kind of like he just throws all the confetti up in the air. and One of these pieces is going to float into the right, uh, the right place. I guess so. But, you know, of course, when you throw so much up there, everybody ends up not believing really any of it. Um, or at least, you know, I mean, is it is it a rogue operation? Is it not a rogue operation? I mean, how do we how do we know what the position is that we can even kind of figure out how to maneuver around? Right. I think one of the things that the president does well, unfortunately, is speak to our own agnosticism uh, about a lot of this stuff. You know, famously standing under, under the umbrella that day, he said something to the effect that, well, I talked to the king. I can't claim to read his mind, but could be rogue killers. Who knows? That's how he ended. Who knows? Which is very unpresidential. I mean, it's like FDR didn't come on and say, well, they bombed, bombed Pearl, Har- Pearl Harbor. Who knows? Who knows why they did it? Maybe they ran out of, you know, maybe there was a bombing test that went wrong or something. Who knows? But but in a way, in, in the way that we feel overwhelmed by information, overwhelmed by news, overwhelmed by different possi- possible understandings of any given situation, Trump kind of, you know, he, he does a good job, I guess, of speaking for us and he's going, well, who knows? Yeah, I mean, you usually depend on the president to say, you know, if, if, if we don't know the answer, he says, well, you know, I'm talking to my people in the national security <laughs> agencies, you know, we are really on the case. We are going to get to the bottom of this and I'll tell you as soon as I find out. And, you know, I want to go back to something you said before, too, because I, I think it's true and I, I'm going to make a somewhat... Uh, troubling comparison. I think one of the things that we as Americans recognize, first of all, I think one of the most potent forces in the world is American pattern recognition. So like if we look at something and we think, oh, I recognize this story and how it goes, uh, or I recognize what's wrong with that story based on how I think things are supposed to go, that's very, very exciting and powerful to us. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, it's why people in Connecticut were, even though there are lots of murders all the time and horrible things happen and children die in murders and intentionally set fires and stuff like that, the Pettit murder was especially gruesome. It was like the only murder people really knew the details about in Connecticut because it was recognizable. It, the Pettit's lives are a little bit closer to the lives that an awful lot of us either live or try to live. And I think there's something about that with Khashoggi, too, in the sense that while he seemed to be trying to have a happy, peaceful life in, you know, in America uh, in a way that we recognize. And so the snatching away of that is a little bit different from the snatching away of life in some foreign hotspot that we can't find our way around mentally. Yeah. I mean, he was a recognizable, um, you know, sort of person who was living in this country as a uh, as a kind of self-exiled person who was in danger going somewhere. I mean, I one of the questions that I guess I've sort of asked myself is, like, why did he go to Istanbul yeah. and go into this consulate in the first place? He must have been pretty confident. But, um, but in any event, I mean, I, I think that's right. You, you know, a lot of Americans spend a lot of time these days watching journalists talk on TV about stuff that's going on. And so even if you're not somebody who's been going to dinner parties with this guy for, for 10 years, um, you know, he's sort of like one of the kinds of talking heads that we we know who they are. Right. And he, I mean, he was schooled in this country. He went to the same university as Larry Bird. 
Uh, he had a fiance. He had this story that we recognized. We do. We spend a lot of time watching journalists. We also spend a lot of time watching a certain kind of narrative. And one thing that that's why I say American pattern recognition is such a powerful force. So I was looking at this and I was thinking, well, one thing this has is something that's very familiar to viewers of Law and Order, which is the trope of don't believe the first story. Like in a way, the Saudis would have been better off in terms of influencing Americans if they just said, look, he disappeared. We know where he is. You don't need to know where he is. He's not a citizen of your country. Go away. You know. But if you tell a fake story first, uh, and maybe even tell a couple of fake stories, we don't know where he is, we don't know what happened, he left the embassy, oh no, there was this brawl and he accidentally got strangled. You know, it, that's another thing. We, we're sort of familiar with that idea. Uh, and, and once again, Mark, I think we, we know how to react to that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's always, um, as you say, it's, you know, tell us this story, we'll react this way. Tell us that story. But once you start you know, rolling out story after story, you begin to feel like this is this really is such nonsense and it's got to be worse. Right. And I think also we, you know, for good or ill, we've, as you say, depended on the president of the United States over the years to, A, give us some kind of official, you know, sort of a governmental version of the paper of record. This is This is the story. This is what happened. To the best of our knowledge, this is what happened particularly with these things that seem kind of dire. And, and then also to say, and this is our position on it. And this is, uh, that's often done in a way that's meant to influence opinion and to create moral outrage. If you think of even, uh, you know, the first invasion of Iraq, uh, George H.W. Bush, you know, told these stories about horrible things that had happened, and babies being ripped out of incubators and hospitals. And I mean, there was, a, there was this narrative that was built up that sort of made us all say, okay, morally, we have to do this. Um, and it does seem as though, although Donald Trump did essentially the same thing to justify one bombing raid in Syria, that he, for the most part, just tells a lot of different stories. And I, I don't know that he's even particularly good at sort of getting us morally outraged when he wants to. No, I mean, I think, you know, there's this great line from the French uh, philosopher, La Rochefoucauld, you know, hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue, that, that, that hypocrisy will, will say what the right thing is morally um, as a kind of tribute to virtue to acknowledge it. Donald Trump doesn't pay that tribute very often. You know, so you, so you don't sort of get, even in the Bush case, where you know, ultimately you learn it's lying, it's not telling the truth about things, but at least it tells you this is the moral framework that we're going to operate under. And if it turns out that the government is faking it, then we know that it's faking it. In this case, you know, you move around, it's arms sales, it's how much money we'll get. Yeah, we'll trade one dead journalist for, you know, $200 billion in arms sales. There's a deal for you. Right. And, and, and uh, I mean, I think Americans at least want to be told a story. And it seems to me that both sides of this have been bad at telling the story. I don't think uh, Trump has settled on a story to tell. And as you say, I don't think he has a clear moral calculus for articulating something like this. Because there's a way in which, I mean, this story, you know, as journalists, we can both see this story has stayed alive for a long time. You know, I, I really, most stories like this that involve just the death of one person, you know, if O.J. Simpson isn't involved, this whole the whole thing is over in a week. Um, this thing is going on and on. It has excited a whole bunch of different sensibilities. And Trump doesn't seem, be able, seem to be able to take a lot of his fellow Republicans with him on this. The, they don't seem to want to go on this journey. So it seems like he's been bad at articulating whatever the moral valences are that he 
thinks or wants us to think are there. And then the Saudis are terrible at it, too. I mean, if they could say something to to the United States, you know, that indicated that they had any, you know, shared sensibilities with us, that would help them. But it seems like everybody's very bad at moral messages in this story. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things to me about this um, is that it's another example uh, of the place where Republicans are prepared actually to stand up uh, to the White House, um, or or at least to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, we had this with Russian sanctions. Um, you know, there have been a sort of set of these things. Uh, now, I, I don't say that, that the Senate or the House have done actually anything in this respect, but, but you do have a feeling that this is where, um, you know, if there's any backbone at all in congressional uh, Republicans, it's, it comes in these international cases so that even, a, you know, Senator Graham or some of these people who, who, have, who have been, um, you know, pretty uh, uh, much in the Trump pocket um, n- n- seem to have no trouble absolutely and directly contradicting him. Right. And I think also, um, I mean, at least I wonder, Mark, I, I think maybe our favorite kind of moral story or our favorite kind of story as Americans about a moral crime is the one we're not implicated in, you know, and, and this has that virtue. Like one of the reasons we have trouble dealing with climate change is because we're among the drivers of climate change. One of the reasons that the story, which we'll tell later in the show about uh, about our involvement with the Saudis in Yemen, which is really morally shocking and reprehensible, uh, is a much more difficult one to tell is because we're so involved in it. You know, we have a role in it. One of the things that makes this Khashoggi story neat uh, and easy maybe for Republicans or anybody else to sort of package up is, is ultimately we didn't do anything bad. This happened in Turkey. Uh, it happened to a, a guy who lived in this country. We theoretically, so far anyway, weren't involved in it. So we kind of like that kind of story. No, I think that's true. And I, th- I, I would just add a slight codicil to your point, which is, um, you know, Khashoggi's uh, last column, which was published after he, um, after he died and, you know, by, with a certain amount of fanfare and, uh, you know, by the, by the post, was all about the importance of freedom of expression in, 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 in the Arab world, in the Middle East. Um, and, you know, we've, we've certainly had freedom of expression to a fairly well in a way. But, I mean, it's one of the things that Americans like to pride ourselves on and, and you know, with some reason. Um, uh, you know, this was a great opportunity to pat ourselves on the back as, you know, here's this guy who, you know, has come over to our side. He maybe was once, you know, a, an Islamist, an Islamist, you know, but, but, now, but now he believed in free expression and he was killed for it. Um, we Americans can finally be America. And, you know, if the president, if, I mean, a normal president would have, would have taken this uh, and run with it, said, you know, this was, this was somebody who was really embracing American values and we can't stand for this and so on. Right. And I, you know, it, it is, I mean, it, it, I think at the top level of American politics, it's hard to have a absolute crystal clear moral code. I always go back to the idea when I looked at Barack Obama coming in and I was a big Barack Obama fan, I don't know, starting on 2006, you know, but I, I, 
during the Obama pre- presidency, a couple of times I watched versions of the um, the play Macbeth, and I would think, well, you know, I mean, Macbeth probably begins the play thinking, I'm not, I would never do stuff like that. And ultimately, Obama was not able to close Guantanamo, uh, was not able to get us out of the business of extrajudicial drone strikes, was very much in the business of deporting large numbers of, uh, of people, and was, you know, one, I mean, it was, the, it was the Obama administration under which we joined this civil war in Yemen. Uh, and, and, you know, I, Obama strikes me as a guy with a pretty clear moral compass and a sense of right and wrong. But once you get up at the top there and there aren't good choices, and maybe that's part of it, right? This is the part, this is one of those parts of the world where it's not like there's some good guy we can sidle up to and align ourselves with. And, and that may be part of the problem too. I think it it is. Um and, and so it really does raise this question of, uh, you know, why do we want the president in the face of uh, a lot of behavior that's pretty well documented that isn't very good? Um, why do we still want the president to be sort of taking at least rhetorically the moral high road? What, does that really serve an important purpose? And I think we're we're discovering with the current administration the purpose that it serves. It really says, you know, these are the things we care about, even if when push comes to shove, we can't always be, um, you know, obedient to those principles. Right. At least you know what what shared value set you are either adhering to or departing from. But having none whatsoever and having everything being be judged on this kind of set of very situational ethics, uh, or not even ethics, just being judged on its on its situation, as you say, what are what are the Saudis worth to us in oil and arms purchases? You know, and and to what degree would anything that we did of a moral nature compromise that? Well, I mean, if you're going to look at every single situation that way, without at least referring to some kind of Kantian standard that you had way back at the beginning, then, yeah, then everything just becomes kind of a negotiation or a deal, which is, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example uh, of this in sort of in another another mode. Most uh, every religious leader or anybody who aspires to religious leadership in this country has kept their mouth shut on this issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been poking around because that's sort of my business. The one person who hasn't kept his mouth shut sort of dependably um, is Pat Robertson. Mm. Um, And Pat Robertson got on his 700 Club a couple of times uh, last week and and made statements, which were essentially White House talking points. Uh, who know, including you know, talking questions. Who knows? I mean, Robertson says that directly on the Seven Hundred Club, and, and he goes through the stuff, and you know, it's a lot of money, and blah blah blah. I mean, and, and you sort of think, and, and there was a lot of reporting of it because, you know, I think the idea that that we have sort of sold our entire moral calculus for this kind of way of behaving in in, in the world, you know, is hideous. And it's not only Trump; it's now his sort of evangelical. Uh, doppelgangers. It, it, you know, really is an interesting question that's right in your your wheelhouse, which is, I, I know, I, I understand that there's no William Sloan coffin anymore, you know, but I kind of like, but I, I kind of don't understand why there, like, why aren't there people who come out of who who are highly placed, visible people within the American religious community who can speak and who will speak powerfully in a situation like this. This one seems like a layup. It seems like a really easy one. You know, that's the reason that it's in the news so much is it's such an, a morally easy thing as, as, a, as compared to the morally complex things. So why isn't there somebody doing that layup? Well, I mean, there's a, a long story, uh, you know, discussion, which maybe we ought to have some time okay. about that. But, 
But I think if you go back to the to the most recent clear moral choice example, which is the separation of children from their parents at mm-hmm. the border uh, a few months ago, there were a lot of collective statements about it. Um, but uh, one of the things that has happened, uh, and, and I think it's worth really pondering, is the degree to which most religious communities are deeply divided. Um, now, that doesn't mean it's half and half, mm-hmm. but there are um, wealthy donors, uh, wealthy leaders, for example, in the Greek Orthodox Church, there was no um, there was no statement on the issue because the clergy laity conference, uh, there were lay people who spoke up and said, you're not going to criticize the president. Um, you can see that in the Jewish community. You can see that in other communities. And so it's not it, – so silence is is one of the consequences of this polarized country that we live in in many, many denominations. It, it just seems – I mean I, I believe and, and consent to everything. That you just said, but it just seems like at that point, then you you have a, an existing set of institutions who are incapable of realizing their purpose. Um, to use a Rick Warrenism, you know, it's, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a kind of moral collapse, um, which is you know extremely disturbing. Um, you know, if the if 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 the you know Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford stops making public moral statements on behalf of the entire Jewish community because there are some strong Trumpians in the community that say, we're not giving to the Federation anymore. That is a really bad thing. Yeah. And, and it, I, I also, I find myself thinking, you know, we all, in, in many respects, we all make trade-offs. We're all involved in these kinds of trade-offs. We're all a little bit, I mean, I think most of us would be uncomfortable countenancing a, a pretty obvious murder in, in return for some kind of lucrative arms deal or, or whatever. I don't think most of us can go there. But at some level or other, everybody's doing that somehow. I mean, we all – I know plenty of Democrats who sort of looked past things that were troubling about Bill Clinton uh, later in his his tenure. Uh, I mean, the Paula Jones accusations, the kind of thing that ruins your political career these days. But it was kind of – I mean, you could see people wrote stuff like this. Like, we really can't afford to lose him over this. I think Patricia Ireland of uh, National Organization for Women wrote something like that. Like he's just too good on most of our issues. We can't, you know, that we can't let this be his undoing. And and I would think that evangelicals watching the Kavanaugh thing unfold. I mean, they want this guy for the reproductive rights stuff. That's their big issue. Um, and um, but as there, I, John Cleese had a great line on Twitter today. He said, "Whenever people bring that stuff up to him uh, about the reproductive uh, stuff, he always goes, there, God gave out ten commandments, not just one. He picked ten for a reason." <laughs> but you know, you you look at like who Kavanaugh appeared to be, and you think, really, because if you believe Christine Blasey Ford, how can you want him on the Supreme Court? But I think we're all we're all bargaining inside ourselves. All the time, and maybe that's just sort of a permanent human condition. Well, there's that combined with the sense, you know, that people have talked a lot about of the of the tribalism. You know, um, yeah, it's a bad thing to deflate a football, but if I'm a if I'm a Patriots fan, uh, you know, Tom Brady didn't do it. I mean, you know, there there comes to be a rooting interest uh, in in political parties to a degree, or there has come to be that to to a degree that is really 
uh, astonishing um, at this point, and 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 I think that you know that's part of what you're talking about. Right. You know, um, uh, uh, Yuval Harari in his book *Sapiens* uh, writes about the fact that one of the things that took us—I've been giving—I'm doing this lecture series at University of Hartford. I was talking about this last week. You know, we went from being this kind of unprepossessing mammal. You know, living in the grasslands of Africa really, you know, would not uh, impress anybody. You know, and then somewhere between seventy to thirty thousand years ago, there was this cognitive revolution you know, where suddenly this unprepossessing, you know, piece of nothing animal became this apex predator and the dominator of the earth. And Harari thinks one of the things that we we acquired was the ability to believe in and be motivi- motivated by things we can't see. You know, that the things no longer have to be completely visible. You can get people really, you know, excited. You couldn't get 55,000 uh, chimpanzees to sit side by side in Lambeau Field and cheer for something as abstract as a football team concept. You know, it doesn't really exist anywhere. And there's no real gain. You don't really get anything out of this if the Packers win or the Patriots win. You know, and the chimpanzees would all kill each other anyway. There's like too many of them in too small a space. But we can all do that because we can believe in invisible things. The danger, of course, is we can believe in invisible things that aren't real. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, or, or, or things that seem that are invisible or not in any material way connected to us make us feel at peace with the world. I mean, if I go through, you know, we go to the end of the of the of the World Series and the Red Sox win, then the entire nation is going to feel, you know, that that somehow the you know all of existence is, has taken a turn for the better, even though <laughs> we've done nothing. Uh, the 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 country is still where it is, but uh, but but that somehow makes us feel, you know, better about the world. So in a way, our involvement in Yemen is kind of like the Red Sox. Sign stealing or something. Um, all right. So we're just willing to live with it for the sake of tribalism. All right. Uh, we're talking to Mark Silk, a professor and director of the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College and staff blogger uh, at Religious News Service. Joining us in just a second after this break will be Adam Davidson, who covers business, technology, and uh, economics for The New Yorker. And his in-laws are right here in Connecticut listening. So Adam has to be extra smart today. All right. So we're talking about how our domestic perceptions of the Khashoggi murder uh, are influenced by, I don't know, essentially who who we are uh, and why this matters and how much uh, it can matter. Uh, In studio with me is Mark Silk, professor and director of the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life. Joining us by phone now uh, is a voice that you will know well uh, from uh, lots of different uh, podcasts and certainly through his writing, uh, Adam Davidson, who's been with us before too, uh, covers business, technology, and economics for The New Yorker. Um, Adam, welcome back to our show. Thanks, Colin. So great to be back. So I was watching you tweet over the weekend, and you were tweeting. It's like you were tweeting out my thoughts, uh, and uh, so I felt very elevated to be having thoughts. 
that Adam Davidson would be tweeting out. Well, I have hacked into your email, so right, exactly. I know exactly what you're thinking at all times. So, um, and, and so you're struggling with some of the same questions that Mark and I have been struggling with. I mean, we, we could start, we didn't really talk in great length in the first segment about uh, our, our protracted involvement with Saudi Arabia in Yemen. I mean, this goes back to the Obama administration. It's been ramped up, you know, by um, an order of magnitude under the Trump administration. But this is a profoundly immoral conflict, as far as I can say tell and we're helping the Saudis like bomb hospitals and stuff. Um, that doesn't seem to be a, a breaking point for Americans, right? Right. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it harkens back to that quote that's attributed to Joseph Stalin. I have no idea if he actually said it, that a single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Mm. And, and I think extrapolating from that, it's, it's, it's even more so I mean, I covered the Middle East for many years. I lived in the Middle East. I speak Hebrew and Arabic, and I get completely overwhelmed with the news out of the Middle East. It's really hard to follow um, from an American perspective. It seems like people who were good guys a few years ago suddenly we think are bad guys and vice versa. And um, and so it, it makes sense to me that it's just so challenging for us to – even understand the players, let alone um, how we should feel about it, how, um, and 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 what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. But a simple story of a sixty-year-old man being, you know, killed in the most gruesome way imaginable, we can our brains can can handle that. We can, I mean, not handle it emotionally perhaps, but we can understand it. We can we can see what it means um, quite quite immediately. And, and it's also, uh, it's, I have this little internal phrase I call a cheap date with your conscience. And that's sort of a cheap date with your conscience is when you can sit, look at something that's identifiably bad and say it's bad and there's no real cost to you. And setting aside uh, arms deals and, and, and oil and stuff like that, it would seem like a pretty cheap date with one's conscience to say this is bad. This is a bad, a bad thing has happened. It's fairly well documented at this point what did happen, uh, and, and it's a terrible thing. And it does seem as though a, a number of Republicans, as I think you pointed out and Mark pointed out in the first segment, they, they're pretty comfortable with that cheap date, um, maybe in a way that the president hasn't settled on being. Yeah, and I, I also think something that's really important with this, at least in my mind, and that is relevant to what we're going through in our country around uh, our president, is that um, I, I think what was revealed in this Khashoggi murder is not only, you know, that a, a clear signal that the Saudi regime is far more brutal and violent than than we realize, but also that they're they're thuggish. They're 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 they can act in stupid ways. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to even a casual observer that Saudi Arabia did not think this one through very well, that they bungled the the assassination, but they also bungled I mean, what, it's hard to even fathom what they thought they would get out of this, what they thought the benefit of, of shutting off this voice versus the cost of him, you know, even under, in their minds, the best circumstances where he just suddenly disappears and no one knows where he is. I mean, it, it, they just seem dumb. They seem incompetent. They seem, you know, and, and, and that to me might be the bigger lesson here. It's not that the Saudis are our partners for really complex, sophisticated reasons that are, you know, have to do with the ancient Middle East and global geopolitics, but that there's these stupid 
cruel thugs who are bad and we shouldn't have them be our partner. And uh, we can talk about it, but I see an easy analogy to what I still expect will happen eventually with the general public's understanding of our president, that cruelty or bad policy won't, won't have people turn on him. Corruption won't have people turn on him. But a real understanding of, of um, just how kind of mediocre and, and incompetent he and his team are could be the thing that make people realize, oh, that's who this guy is. Yeah, Adam, I want to turn back to Mark Silk, who's in studio, too, and just because it seems to be the other side of this. And it's the thing that Adam has been getting at a lot in his reporting and, and with what he's suggesting now, too, is do we have I mean, we, we talked in the first segment about how we don't really we, we have the well spelled out moral code that you can kind of make reference to. And I also wonder if we really know where our breaking point is anymore. You know, I mean, I think it's one of the questions we keep asking uh, about President Trump. What's the thing where we just we can't go on any longer. We can't walk down that road with him anymore. And I don't. Yeah, go ahead. I don't think we know. I mean, you know, every time something happens, the next thing happens. You know, going back to the uh, the Access Hollywood t- tape, we think we know what the what the breaking point is, and it turns out not to be it. Um, I, you know, I'd like to believe that there is such a thing. Uh, and maybe Adam's right. It, it's some kind of revelation of incompetence, although there's been you know, quite a lot of revelations of incompetence uh, over the past couple of years, and it hasn't seemed to have affected people very much. Um, what do you say to that, Adam? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the strongest evidence that nothing will ever change with Trump is that nothing has ever changed with Trump, and, and, and that is the base case. And, and, and I have a pretty hard time, you know, convincing other people and sometimes convincing myself that anything will change. Um, I, I do think, and I, you know, I, I liken it to other experiences I've had in my journalistic career where the facts on the ground are so at odds with public perception and public perception eventually catches up. So I, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy by any stretch, but I think of the Iraq war. And when I, um, covered the Iraq war with my wife, West Hartford native, Jen Banbury, um, in 2003, we, um, uh, you know, just being on the ground in Baghdad, it was very clear to us, this is a disastrous occupation, it's going terribly. And we would come back to the States on vacation, and even our liberal friends who didn't support the war would be like, oh, it seems like it's going really well. And we'd say, no, 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 the facts on the ground are terrible. And eventually, it caught up. Now, I don't know if that'll happen this time because we do have Fox News. We do have such separate spheres. But I feel like if I can finally convey what I know about how Donald Trump does business, people will not be able to support him. And um, and that might be wishful thinking, and people tell me it is all the time. But, but um, I, I do think when you look at history, whether it's Nixon, the Iraq War, the financial crisis, other times when there was a Vietnam, when there's a fundamental shift from um, in public opinion, um, I think you do see these pivotal moments that that um, that come that are not big. They're not. It's not. Oh, Yemen. Fi- Saudi Arabia finally did kill just too many children in Yemen. It's often something small and focused, like a very like the murder of a man that most people had never heard of. Um, and so that is what 
my prediction is, it's a pretty weak prediction, but, but it's mine. That's all I got, is that at some point in the next year, there will be some recording, some moment where it's like, oh, that's who this guy is. That's who Trump is. And I won't get everybody, but it'll get enough people that it'll shift the political dynamics. You know, um, Adam, at one point, as I was just compiling notes for this, I, I wrote in a kind of depressed state of mind, everybody is Manafort. And and by this I meant, I mean, you know, now that we're sort of adding up, like, who works for the Saudis in this country? You start with former senators uh, like Norm Coleman and highly placed Republicans like Ed Rogers and Haley Barber. And then on the Democratic side, Joe Lockhart and Carter Eskew. Uh, and of course, Tony Podesta, of course. Um, and, and, you know, Vice Publishing, their London arm is making, uh, you know, promotional movies about the Saudis. And the McKinsey Group today has this, it, it appears that they provided somehow or other that the, the Saudis got hold of a McKinsey Group report, which apparently they did just for the office Christmas party or something, not for any client, God knows, right. that actually told them, you know, who to shut down, which dissidents to shut down. And I just look at it all and I think, wow, it's not just Paul Manafort who's working for all these terrible people. It's everybody. It is everybody. I mean, there has been, and the financial crisis was a piece of this. In the last... Um, uh, let's call it 20 years, there's been an accumulation of wealth. I mean, it's something that's never happened before in history where you have um, wealth accumulating uh, the, the sort of poorer parts of the world, the less developed parts of the world being net creditors, meaning they have extra cash, and the richer part of the world, the U.S., parts of Europe, Japan being net debtors, meaning they're borrowing from those people. And this, it's not to say things were great when, you know, the Europeans were colonizing everything. Um, You know, I'm certainly not saying anything like that. But we do have this odd moment in, in human history where you have enormous percentages of global wealth in the hands of um, countries that have uh, much more modest and immature institutions um, for, you know, handling that money. So, you know, with, with Saudi Arabia being the poster child of this transition. And that creates um, both an opportunity and a, and a challenge. The, opportun- the, the opportunity is it's really easy to make money with the Saudis because they have a lot of it and they don't have a lot of productive local investments. It's not like there's the Saudi Google or the Saudi Tesla that they're going to pour billions into. They're, they're going to buy consumer goods abroad. They're going to invest in companies abroad, and they're going to have a lot of money to spend on their own reputation. And that's just an opportunity available to people. All you have to do is check your morals at the door, which turns out to be incredibly easy to do, especially when there's a lot of money available. It's very different from competing, say, in New York or Paris or London or, or even Shanghai or Singapore for um, public relations work or lobbying work where you really got to hustle. There's a lot of competition and you got to be, you know, really great at your job and not just willing to not be too judgmental of someone else. So what? it's a great time to be amoral. It's a, it's a, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been able to make so much money before being amoral. I want to come back to that, but Mark, what were you going to say? Well, actually, I was just going to ask uh, you, Adam, um, what you make then of the stories about the importance of Saudi money in the Trump reaction to this particular story. I mean, how... How important is that in the overall wash of money out of Saudi Arabia into the hands of people who want it? 
I, I, so I think, you know, first of all, it, it's important just in the way that Trump says it's important that, um, you know, he, he has a very transactional view of, of politics and, and, of, and of the way a national economy works. It's, it's, it's a mistaken view. It's not how any serious people think about how an economy works, but it's clearly how he does, that if I have a $100 billion deal here and $200 billion deal there, then eventually it adds up and the economy is doing well. That's just not how macroeconomics should work, and we don't have to get into all that. But clearly, he thinks that he's arranged some deal, or he wants to tell his followers he's arranged some $110 billion deal that's going to make us $110 billion richer. It sounds like a lot of money, so that matters. I also think that at the end of the day, and this is you know, my informed supposition based on a lot of reporting, that we're going to learn that things are a lot simpler um, than they might appear. Trump has surrounded himself with several people who are known to be making a lot of money directly from the Saudis. Um, his longtime friend and occasional business partner, Tom Barrick, um, the, uh, Elliot Broidy and George Nader, J- George Nader, who's now a witness for the Mueller campaign, um, probably, very possibly his, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Um, and it, it's hard for me to imagine the Saudis haven't thought about ways to enrich Trump himself and hide it from the world. And it's hard for me to imagine that Trump hasn't been tempted by that. I, I don't know what that might look like or if that's happened. But I, I, would, I, I would be very surprised if there isn't a, you know, in addition to the kind of bad, you know, bad economics, but good politics, public story about, hey, these guys want to spend money in America, why should we stop them? There isn't also some just regular old corruption going on. Well, you know, everything that you say, Adam, leads me to something I wanted to ask you about anyway, which is a quote uh, from uh, President Trump describing the relationship between his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, He says, they're just, they're two young guys. Jared doesn't know him well or anything. They're just two young people. They're, they are the same age. They like each other, I believe. You know, Adam, you were describing uh, uh, this world, this uh, world that um, is typified by the Saudis, where you don't necessarily have to be really, really brilliant, uh, but if you have a lot of power and, and wealth to begin with and are, you're willing to check your morals at the door, you can make even more money. Um, we know, for example, that Jared Kushner had uh, came into his White House life with, I mean, you know this way better than I do, but a, a lot of actual financial troubles. As opposed to this really well-run run real estate empire, he had you know some pretty pronounced needs. I don't know when when you see Donald Trump describe this relationship of these two young princes. What do you take from it? I mean, it, it's an amazing quote, and, and it's <laughs> funny. I predicted that he would say that, not realizing he had already said that. So, um, first of all, there is this bizarre thing that whenever he's talking about Jared or Don Jr., if they mess up, they're just young kids, um, even though they're in their 30s and 40s and, and you know are, have incredibly responsible jobs. Of course, when the Central Park Five are wrongly accused of, of um raping a woman um, in New York, Trump wants them executed, even though uh, many of them were well under 18. Um, so, so his definition of young kid applies to white people that he's related to, apparently. Um, but I do think that there are similarities between Jared Kushner and MBS. They are, you know, they, they are 
two people who, you know, they weren't born on third base. They were born, you know, <laughs> in the grand Slide, home run. So sliding and, into home plate. Yeah, and, and think they've, you know, whatever, uh, you know, won the series. And I think um, it is true that Jared is, you know, clearly a much worse businessman than his father, came very close to destroying the family company, may well have done so, we'll see, by over-investing in 666 Fifth Avenue. And now it looks like MBS has wildly overplayed his hand um, in ways that seem to have long-term repercussions for um, for the Saudis. It is a very old way of think- seeing the world, a way you know the, the the view of the world that that you are successful and and earn your success because you were born rich and born powerful it's um it it is you know it i, I suppose it will always be with us but it it feels like a very old way of the world the other thing by the way is that mohammed bin salman has openly said that he's got jared in his pocket i don't think this is a mutual love affair. I think that um, MBS is, is far more sophisticated, even if he's a thug and, and and probably screwed up really badly here. I mean, he definitely did morally, but also just from the, his own self-interest. Um, but I, I don't, I think he's playing on a different level than Jared. Jared. Jared just continues to strike, not just me, I think most people, as just an unbelievable uh, chump in these interactions. We have to take a quick break here. Uh, we'll come back. I do want to say that uh, a lot of people found out about the Jared MBS uh, relationship for the first time reading Bob Woodward's book Fear, in which the, it is described in some detail. I will be on stage with Bob Woodward. It, it, now there we're now questions as to whether Bob Woodward fully understood the implications of this relationship. But um, I will be on stage with Bob Woodward at the Bushnell on November 1st, uh, and I'll have a chance to ask him lots of questions. We're going to come back. We'll have just a brief chat, a chance to wrap up with Adam and with Mark, and we'll do that. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jared Kushner. Tomorrow, our show on the history of fire. And now... Back to Colin. We've just got a few minutes left here with Mark Silk, professor and director of the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College, and Adam Davidson, who covers business, technology, economics, and pretty much everything else, too, for uh, The New Yorker. Um, And so, um, uh, Adam, first of all, uh, Mark and I were talking during the break. Uh, If I called up on September 25th the Committee to Protect Journalists uh, and said there's going to be this big atrocity involving uh, a journalist and we're really going to be dependent on Erdogan from Turkey uh, for a lot of really valid, good, solid information, he's going to be kind of the beacon uh, of light and truth about all this. I mean, they would have thought I was high. Um, I mean, one of the many ironies uh, of this very troubled part of the world is you wind up having to trust people who are completely untrustworthy. Absolutely. And 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 for, for, for his own reasons, whether that's to pressure America ultimately to um to to give up um his uh, you know Gulen, his his enemy who who lives in Pennsylvania, or the, um you know, some other, you know, as yet unclear agenda. I have to say, just from a sort of media management standpoint, the Turks have been incredibly sophisticated at keeping this story in the front. Uh, you know, if they had dumped everything they knew on the first day, it would have been quite shocking, but we'd already be talking about something else. They've they've managed to make this story 
the story in the entire world for 10 days. And I can tell you as a reporter, it takes a lot to do that. that that's, that's pretty remarkable. Mark, you were saying the same thing. I was asking you, how does this end? And you were saying, well, we don't know how it ends because Erdogan hasn't emptied his pistol yet, right? Right. I mean, I want to know a bunch of things about what the Turks know and also what they've done. I, I, it seemed like more than uh, a coincidence that this pastor, Andrew Brunson, Brunson was, was released just as this story was sort of taking off. Um, do you have any reason to think, that, Adam, that, that this was just a coincidence? Or, or? I mean, f- from spending many years in the Middle East, it, it, it is, you know, there, there's a reason conspiracy theories are um, so potent, and that's because there's an awful lot of conspiracies that actually <laughs> happen, you know, both, uh, you know, the, the, the local governments do and that the U.S. does. So, so that's one where, I would believe it is linked that there is a real sophisticated Turkish play here to fundamentally restructure relationships in the Middle East away from Saudi Arabia and and towards Turkey. And I would also believe that it's a bunch of messed up coincidences. So um, and, and, and that is kind of how I felt, you know, for the entire time I lived in the Middle East. All right. Uh, we are going to have to wrap. The uh, one thing that I will say here that has emerged from the talk of both these both of these very smart guys here is that, yeah, I, I think the other thing that has happened right now is that the point has passed at which Donald Trump could say, all right, well, this is where this is what I'm going to do about this. You know, this is a real problem and this will not stand, as uh, as Bush 41 would have said. Uh, this is what I'm going to do about this. So he needs Erdogan at this point to tell him one more thing, because right now he's kind of let the moment pass, right, where he could engage in in, in, in kind of some kind of moral behavior, um, I assume you guys agree that there's. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. and but Erdogan has a bunch of cards to play, including videotape, audiotape, um, and and who knows who knows what else. All right, we're going to have to wrap this thing up. I got to thank Betsy Kaplan who helped me pull it together. So great to have Adam Davidson. I know the Banburys were impressed. Yes, such an excellent job. (laughs) Although you can never really quite be good enough for your in-laws, but but if they're not happy with you, Adam, who would they be happy with? (laughs) Uh, Mark Silk, professor uh, uh, and director of the Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College. Thanks for coming in studio with me. And thanks to all of you who listened today. Uh, We've got a week of lots of interesting stuff, uh, and including, I think, what will be a very interesting pre-election episode of The Wheelhouse on Wednesday morning. Don't forget that. Oh, and we have a pun contest. I don't know. It feels it's such a grim story. It's hard for me to announce our pun contest. But uh, go to our uh, Facebook page, the Colin McEnroe Show page, and learn about our pun contest.